0: Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. All right, if you have your Bibles handy, we're going to make our transition now into First Samuel. I'm loving our study of First Samuel. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter four today. First Samuel chapter four today. All right. Now, as you're turning there, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, driving. So, I when I turned 16, like I couldn't wait. To drive, I couldn't wait to drive. Now I, apparently, there's some sort of phenomenon now where there's a number of people who can wait to drive. They're not excited about it. like when they told me I could get my permit at 15. I was all in. I was like, how fast can I get this thing? And when can I get the keys all by myself? That's what I, I just wanted to drive really bad. How, how many of you were like me? You're just like, couldn't wait to drive, right? And how many of you are like, I could wait. It didn't matter to me. All right. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. So I, I don't get you people, but great. Um, we still love you. And there's a place for you at Sand Sandhills. Um, so like, I, I remember my parents told me, they said, when you, when you come of age, when you get to 16, you're going to get your mom's car. All right. So mom drove. A 1981 Ford Escort L <laughs> wagon, five-speed. And I mean, it, I mean, it, I mean, I guess you could say it was sporty, except for the engine and the performance. But um, other than that, it was a great little car. So you know, that was my first car, my first exposure. So I'm driving that car for a little while, and uh, and one day I just happened to notice that my on my tires, my front tires, uh, they had like a like a bald spot that had worn through on just a part of the tire. Like the rest of the tire was good, but just on the part of the tire, there was a bald spot. And even some of the uh, metal braiding was coming out from the inside. And so uh, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, um, something's wrong with my tires. Can you look at them? And so he looked at them and he looked and he said, oh, your car's out of alignment. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, so like when your suspension gets messed up or your wheels are out of camber, um, you're going to start uneven wear on a part of your tire. And so unfortunately, I had let it go so long that now I needed new tires as well as an alignment. So I guess the side note to the story is please make sure you get your car aligned regularly. That'd be great. Um, and find a place as a side side note, find a place that does a lifetime alignment is even better because then you could pay for it once. But anyway, uh, so I learned something about my car though. When you are out of alignment, when your car is out of alignment, you have excessive wear on a part part of your tire, uh, and it leads to damage that could be permanent. Okay, so here's the thing. So now thinking about 1 Samuel chapter 4, how do you know when you're out of alignment with God? How do you know when you're out of alignment with God? And I think this, when you begin to see excessive wear in a part of your life, and it's causing damage then you might be out of alignment with God. Now, I'm not saying that difficulty in life means you're out of alignment with God, because all of life is difficult. <laughs> it's just, that's just how it is. I mean, we live in a broken world. Um, so it's not just that. But this idea that it can be that if you're out of alignment with God, and you would know you're out of alignment with God, that life, you're just making life harder than it, it should be or could be. So I, I, I say this, life is most fulfilling when we are in alignment with God. Life is most fulfilling when we're in alignment with God. And it's just the easiest way to do a life that is going to be difficult anyway. And so, so let's look at how Israel has to process that kind of idea when it comes to spiritual alignment. First Samuel chapter 4. Now, for those who have not been with us, this was written about 900-ish B.C., so about 900-ish B.C. is when this was written. Israel is struggling at this time spiritually. The, the leadership of Israel is struggling at this time uh, spiritually. But God is doing a new thing, and he's raising up a new generation. And he's doing it through a faithful family, uh, a father named Elkanah, a wife named Hannah, and then their son named Samuel. So God's doing a new thing. He's doing something fresh and exciting. But at this time, Israel's really struggling. Uh, so go, if you go to 1 Samuel 4, verse 1, it starts off like this. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. All right, so we'll just pause there. So you know, uh, and if you don't, you're gonna find out right now, <laughs> that scripture was not written with all these handy little numbers in front of all the, so, like you don't write letters that way, right? Do you? That'd be the weirdest email you could ever send. So uh, in fact, that'd be fun. You should do it one time. Um, but like, it wasn't written this way. It's just written as a letter. And so if you do this, if you back up to 1 Samuel 3 with the idea that this is a letter and start in what we call verse 19. So 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, meaning all of Israel, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So that's how I think it probably needs to be put together. Now listen, I'm not saying I'm smarter than the people that put the Bible in its current form, so I'm just saying. But that that line needs to be backed up a little bit, and here's why. Samuel is about to vanish from the story. Um, this is gonna be one of those transition parts of your TV shows uh, that will, that you'll be watching something and it says like three years earlier or 10 years later or whatever it is when it makes that transition. That's what's going on here. Samuel will vanish from the scene and he's gonna show up in about three chapters. Um, and so that's why it looks like here. So what God has done is, as if you were here last week, he's raising up this young boy. He's begun to use him as a prophet and then he vanishes from our interaction in the story and he's gonna show up later kind of grown up. So that's what we're gonna see when we get to chapter 7. So four, five, and six cover several years. We don't know how many. They cover a number of years. So that's where we are here. The word of uh, Samuel came to all Israel slash the word of God came to all Israel through Samuel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. All right, so there's no indication here, by the way, that it's Samuel who sent them to battle, which is why I would separate maybe that line. And I do think that when you get to the conjunction now, that that's making a transition. So here's the thing with Samuel. Now, let's talk about what's going on with Israel. And here's what's going on with Israel. They're going to battle with the Philistines. They set up at two different places uh, and they drop this battle line. All right, so now we have this group of people introduced called the Philistines, the Philistines. So the Philistines, they are the boo-hiss kind of people. Like you hear the Philistines and you should be like, boo-hiss, they're horrible people. Uh, let's pull up uh, a map we have a map here of Israel Um, so in this map of Israel the the Philistines who were historically known as the sea people and they were known as the sea people because they came from overseas and they settled in Israel and they landed and started around this place called Gaza which is southwest uh, of Israel if you ever get a chance to go there and then they have expanded from there. So here's the thing. The Philistines became the dominant people in Israel. And I mean like the, the people who ruled by force. They were a warring people. They were a mean people. Uh, they went through and they conquered. So that by the time you get to the time of the judges, including Samson, uh, Samson's main enemy is the Philistines because they are basically running Israel at this time. They will also be the main enemy under Samuel, under David, uh, and under Saul. So this is going to be the main enemy that's coming up and will be here for a while. Um, so you need to know that they're a, a polytheistic people they worship a lot of gods um, but now they're kind of in control so when it says Israel went to battle them it's not as though Israel is dominant and they're fighting this small skirmishing group that has entered their land it is the Philistines who are dominant and Israel is just trying to to at least hold their own against them alright so that kind of maybe sets up the story for you a little bit now uh, oh on our map too just so you'll know and I just do this because I like maps and our faith is real in real stuff and so let's talk about that a little bit if you go Uh, northeast of Gaza a little bit, you will see up there the city Aphek, and to the east somewhere, uh, maybe just a couple miles to the east, it's lost now because of history, uh, is Ebenezer, and so that's where um, the Israelites are in Ebenezer, the Philistines are in Aphek, and um, here they are about to have this big showdown, but let's find out what happens when you're out of alignment with the Lord, uh, and you're going to see this horrible thing begin to happen, starting in verse 2, so the Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So uh, this is set up here so that if you've been reading the first three chapters and you've gotten to now chapter four and you just read that last part, uh, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. It's meant to be that if you've read this far in the story already, when you hear that, you're like, ooh, ooh, that's, mm, that's not good. That's not, and so, if you haven't been with us this, this journey and you're like, why is it not good? Well, it'll make sense before we're done here. But that's already like this foreshadowing of like, ugh. all right, so here's what happened they go to battle. You've got this 4,000 men who die in the battlefield, the elders of Israel. So, The elders of Israel were established in Numbers chapter 11. So in Numbers chapter 11, it says, uh, select 70 men who will be the elders of Israel, the leaders, and they're the ones that that you would go to as like your council, your national council to determine events. And so the idea is they come back, we've had this crisis on the battlefield, and notice the words that they used. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It must have been such an unusual defeat that it seems supernatural. And it's like they were saying, the hand of God is against us. What have we done? And so they pull back now, and they're literally asking the question, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? So now what they decide to do is, oh, you know what we should do? Let's get the Ark of the Covenant and take it with us, and then we'll win. All right, so if I were to pause right now, this would be a great discussion you could have. Does anybody see a problem with this logic? Anybody see a problem with this logic? So let's talk about the problem with this logic just a little bit. First of all, you should have answered the first question. Why is the Lord working against us? You're, you're not going to change your situation just by trying to force God to make you win. That's not how it's going to work. So you should answer that question. Why is the Lord against us? And what they should have done, but we have no evidence of. What they should have done, I would think, and again, I'm not saying I'm smarter than the 70 elders of Israel. I'm just, you know, I'm 3,000 years removed in, you know, a different situation. But what should have happened probably is they should have gone to Eli, and if they didn't keep, feel comfortable with Eli, should have gone to Samuel, the new prophet on the scene, and asked What what have we done? What do we need to do? Why did we lose just now? And then what they probably would have heard is, you are a rebellious people. You are sinning against me. Your hearts are far from me. Repent of your sin and follow me and I will bless you and deliver you. I think that's probably what would have happened. Uh, it's not at all what happened. Uh, they were like, well, let's just make God fight for us. And so they go back and they get God's holy box. All right, well, let's talk about God's holy box for a second. So the ark, uh, the ark was created, if you're taking notes, uh, ark was created Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 10. The ark was created in Exodus 25 verse 10. You should go back and read about that. It's interesting. I'm gonna give extra credit today for people who can tell me that the three items that are in that box, the holy box of God. So here's what I want, just for fun. There's no prizes here. You're just doing this. Um, you'll get uh, Jesus will give you a star. Um, raise your hand if you know one of the things that's in the Ark of the Covenant, all right? One of the things in the Ark of the Covenant. I see that hand right in the back. Just shout it out. What? What? There's manna. Okay, there's a jar of manna in the Ark of the Covenant, absolutely, so that's one of the items, okay, two other, actually, odd that you chose that as your first one, I'm just going to point out, that to me, the most obscure, which means you've really studied, all right, somebody else, yes, right here, Aaron's staff, which, what's the side note about his staff, interesting, it had budded, and it was still, yeah, so that's in there, so you have the Aaron's budded staff, and then you have the jar of manna, and then uh, probably the lesser known one, what's the other one, the Ten Commandments, yeah, like, I, I thought that would be the big one. But I guess, you know, like, no, the manna, it was killer. Have you ever had that? I want to have some. Um, yeah. I'm not mocking you. I'm agreeing with you. Uh, so, yeah, uh, this is a crazy thing. So here we are with this, this crazy stuff going on with the ark. Let's take that to battle. All right, so let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, it's very presumptuous of the elders that if we'll just take God's box, then he will fight for us. That's already a problem. Um, and you're treating this like the genie in the lamp. And what I would do to them is I would pause and go, you realize God doesn't live in the box, right? You're not going to get this out to the battlefield, rub the side of it, and then God pops up like, ta-da, listen, what would you like me to do? Like, that's not how this works. It's, it, it is a representation of the presence of God. At his leisure, he appears on top of it, but he doesn't live in it or around it. He's not bound to the box. That's not, that's just not how this thing works. And they've just gotten kind of out of whack um, with what they're thinking here, um, I would say this too like as you're marching you're only marching with a symbol it would be it would be very similar I suppose to if you had a king and so let's imagine you have this king of this uh this huge nation and he steps out one day from the throne room and, to get a corn dog I, don't, I guess that's what a king would do so he goes he comes back in, he's got his corn dog he walks in and he's like where's my chair right and and so then there's some servant there and they're like Yeah, see, while you were gone, um, these people came in. They're, like, fighting a battle or whatever. And um, they said they wanted your chair to go with them to battle because they thought they could win. And the king would be like, that's weird. (laughs) That's really weird. So, Because the idea is this. Like, the Ark of the Covenant is like the throne of God. He sits on it from time to time, but he doesn't live in it. And here they are marching with God's chair into battle, going, victory! It's the weirdest thing. Like, even from God's perspective. I mean, even God had to be watching this going, that's weird. That was really weird. Like, where did they miss it? Which then shows this, that theologically, they're far from God. Like, they don't even understand anymore what this is all about. And so, because they've gotten far from God, theologically, which, warning to us as a nation... Worrying to us as a people, do not get far from God theologically, stay a, a good student of his words so that we also don't get deceived by silly stuff. Because you could be. It would be like, I heard somebody say this years ago. They were wearing like a cross necklace and saying something like, well, I wear this to kind of ward off evil. I'm like, you should wear garlic. Uh, Like, I I don't know. It's like, if you're going to be playing make-believe, choose other things. Um, Like, uh, carry a silver bullet. I don't know. Like, those are, the cross does, God is not bound to trinkets, all right? So, um, and that's what they're thinking, is that God is bound to trinkets. And I would say, too, I think it's a very human desire to want to control God or manipulate God. I I, I can see that. But it's just, it's not reality. And this is where these people are trying to do what they shouldn't be doing. All right, let's go to verse 5. Uh, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. All right, so this is interesting. Well, at least the Philistines have heard of God, right? So that's kind of cool. I mean, like they they've heard they've heard the stories. Now they think a god has come into the camp, and then they associate the plagues with multiple gods, which would make sense if you're polytheistic. Uh, it makes no bearing on the actual truth, but they've heard of God, so that's kind of neat. So here's a question: If God does not show up now, if God doesn't show up now and bring victory for Israel, will this hurt God's reputation? Like if He doesn't now do what's expected? Well, then other, other tribes start thinking, ah, we can fight the Israelites, right? Their, their God's no longer with them. Uh, and so if you were to ask me, do, do you think it affects God's reputation? I would say, I don't think God cares. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think God cares about his reputation at all. I really don't. Because he is so far superior to us. His reputation is what it is. And what we think of him, I don't think he cares. What I do think he cares about very sincerely are his people. His children who should be following him, that's what he cares about. And if you're like, well, God, if you punish these people, because I'm, you know, I've heard over the years, you have too, of of ministry leaders that have fallen or of churches that have fallen because sin has gotten out. And some might think, well, this damages the image of the church. This damages the image of God's people. Yeah, it has no bearing on the image of God. Like, God is not his people, and he is more concerned about us as his people being faithful to him than what he looks like to the world around him. Any more than you would care about what a five-year-old down the street thinks of you. Like, if somebody comes to me and goes, look, dude, there's a five-year-old, lives a block away, doesn't like you very much. i gonna be like, I don't even care. I just don't even care. That kid will get over it. Like, I think that's how God views this thing. So I don't think he's worried about his reputation. And so, now, let's talk about them going to get this thing. First of all, do we have our map? Can we put our map back up here? All right. So here we are. So they are in Ebenezer, which is near Aphek, east of Aphek, maybe only by a couple of miles. So you can see Shiloh uh, a little further over from there. And so if you take your map and you kind of do your finger kind of thing here. So from Aphek or from even Ebenezer to Shiloh, I mean, it's maybe not quite 20 miles, but maybe it's like 15-ish, you know, something like that. Like it's, it's some distance away. Now, do you remember how the ark is supposed to be carried? Right? You saw Indiana Jones, right? That, that's how we know. So, uh, they, it's supposed to be carried on poles, right? So they've got this big, heavy—you know—it's uh, wood gilded with gold, with all the stuff on top of it, the cherubim and all that kind of stuff. And these uh, four people carry it on poles. They're going to be walking this baby 15 miles. It's going to take a minute, right? <laughs> so when they say "Go get the ark," they're like. All right, we'll see. See in a few weeks, right? Like, so it's gonna be—it's gonna be a minute um, before them, they get there. So they go back, they get this thing, and they bring it in. And when they bring it in, there's just a thunderous roar of the Hebrew people. And I like, in some ways, in that sense, even though they're wrong and they misunderstand what this is all about, there is a part of this that's like. All right, well, at least, at least they really have the sense that, that that with the presence of God, we will have victory, all right? Now, they're only wrong in the sense that his presence isn't there, just his box. But but they, they have this feeling. So there's something about that. And I was trying to think of, like, when do you hear, like, a roar like that? And I would say this. If you've ever been to a, a, a big, like, football game, like a big football game, like if you've been to the Gamecocks, like they used to cheer when they won years past, they... <laughs> They would you come and there would be the sun. Now, actually, I was thinking. I'm oh, sorry, no shade to the Gamecocks. The, like before every game, that place is as loud as it will be the entire game. And so uh, you get there, and then they do the sandstorm, you know. And you get in there, it's like and people like like if you were walking by the stadium at that point, forget all the cars and the people milling around. But if you were walking by the stadium at that point, you would go, oh, something's definitely happening in there. Like something something big is about to go down in there, right? That that would be your your thought. By the way sandstorm played during this moment also would have been appropriate i mean just just saying you're walking through the desert you got the box of god i mean you can see the people like ah. you know like i can see it so anyway so they go into camp hebrews are going nuts i mean it's like you know god has showing up he's cool like it's, they're pumped they think they're gonna win why at the same time while they think they're gonna win the philistines think they're gonna lose like, that's how it goes. It's, like, it's just like, this is like big dog and underdog kind of thing. And, and listen, I went to Appalachian State University. I, we have been the underdog a couple of times when we conquered Michigan and then Texas A&M. Like, we had these, these moments over the past few years where we beat a big school. Like, this is the kind of thing. So they think they're going to lose. They think they don't have a shot. And so it's, it's ironic that the same arc that gives strength to the Hebrews is also going to give strength to their enemy. Because they're like, guys, if we don't man up right now, like, we, we run Israel. These are, our, these are our servants. These are slaves. We, we conquer these people. If we're not careful, they're gonna reverse that and they're gonna conquer us. So you better all strap on because we gotta take it to them. And so the same pumped upness here is also pumping up the enemy. And so they're like, all right, we're gonna fight even more viciously uh, than we have to this point. And so this is what they're gonna do. Now again, what happens when you're out of alignment with God? You sustain major damage. Look at this, uh, verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Uh, There's just a lot that goes on in that quick summary right there. The Philistines fought, they win. You've got this, uh, 30,000 people are slaughtered. The ark is gone, and Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Just what a horrible defeat. Unexpected uh, by the people. And when it says here that that Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home, that doesn't mean they regrouped, right? This is not like uh, there's been a confrontation on the battlefield. Uh, Soldiers withdraw. They regroup, make a new plan. They come back for an attack. No, this is like, it got so bad, people just quit. They're dropping their weapons and they're just going home. They're like, it's over, it's over. And, and here's another thing uh, about war. Like the war doesn't end when you lose. Like it's not like the Philistines will defeat Israel on this battlefield and now they've killed 34,000 if you had the previous four. The, like they've wiped out 34,000. They're not just going, hey, we won. All right, let's go back to doing whatever we do. No, now it is like Israel needs to learn something. And so they will press on, and they're going to just bring devastation to Israel. Um, so this is not, I mean, this is a, this is a, was a horrible defeat in every regards, uh, what's going on here. Let's go forward in our story, starting at verse 12. So a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and he came and he told Eli. So here's Eli. uh, He's sitting, he's waiting. Now it says here that his heart has trembled uh, because actually he's really concerned about the ark, which is curious. Uh, He's really concerned about the ark of God. Uh, There's no mention about him being concerned about his sons. Uh, just concerned about the ark. I do wonder this too because some of you maybe are familiar with the prophecy which we will unpack here in a little bit Uh, but we'll get to that here in a second. Man runs into town his tours are cloned uh, his (laughs) clothes are torn You know, it's been a long morning already. His clothes are torn. He's got dirt on his head. Now, I don't know what you think of when you see uh, torn clothes and dirt on somebody's head, you know, like homeless or something. I don't know. But but in this culture, in this day and age, especially if you look and you can kind of tell this guy's a soldier and he's run, I mean, 15 to 20 miles to come back to tell you this news. So he shows up. If you're a Hebrew and you see somebody with torn clothes, dirt on their head, extreme grief extreme tragedy, something bad has happened. That's what you see there. In fact, you see this probably played out if you've ever watched a, a, a representation of biblical times or something like that, where somebody maybe hears blasphemy and then they tear their clothes, you know, like blasphemy, you know, like this whole idea of like, it's a representation of something that was that was whole and good has now been hurt, destroyed. Uh, so it's a, it's a symbol of grief. So when he shows up this way, it's just a bad sign. And so uh, when he shares with the town, they cry out. And they cry out like, like people who realize what's coming. Again, um, now we as a country, we've never had, uh, had an enemy on our soil. Uh, praise the Lord. It's because we have the most awesome military in all the world. Thank you all. Um, but so they, they come to our, but, but if an enemy came and we met them on the shores and we lost, our enemy doesn't just go, oh, hey, we won. We can go back home. They are going to bring devastation to the country. Like, we will be afraid. So when this guy comes back and he tells the people at Shiloh, we lost. The ark is gone. Hophni and Phinehas, two of our main priests, they're dead. Nobody there is just going like, oh, what a, what a horrible loss. Well, I feel bad for Eli. And I feel like, like, nobody's doing that. What they're thinking next is they're coming for us. Your loss means we now will lose. Like people are going to invade our homes. They're going to kill us. They're going to destroy. They're going to do all the things that happen in a war. That's coming for us. In fact, by the way, if you keep reading about uh, later in the story, we'll know Eli, his family, the descendants of priests, we're never, not going to find them in Shiloh again. It looks like Shiloh is going to be destroyed. They're going to end up about 15 miles south in a city called Nob. So it's, everything's going to change for them. So that's why they're processing. So then he runs up. So the man hurries up. He comes. He tells Eli, verse 15. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set that he could not see. you're three 3,000 years ago, you're living in 98? Solid, solid, that's pretty good. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? I'm really curious how that line was delivered. You know, like, like this guy shows up in town, he makes an announcement, the whole town cries out. Eli hears it. The whole town cries out. He shows up. He's out of breath. Like, oh, okay, I just fled from the battlefield. Like, oh, how are things going? You know, <laughs> like, I, I, just, I just fled. I ran away. I ran away. How did things go? Like, they, not good, Eli. Not good at all. So here we go. I am he who's come from the battle. I fled from the battle. He said, how to go, my son? He who brought the news answered. And he said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. So um, yeah, just a horrible situation there where he's waiting. Now, I I guarantee this, that he probably already assumed that his kids were gonna be dead. Um, It just seems, probably he assumed that. So we see this in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter two, we know there was a prophecy made. 1 Samuel chapter two, this was the prophecy given to Eli. It said this, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress... You will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you, whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. So I I guarantee this, the the day that the soldiers showed up and Eli is there, Hophni and Phinehas are there, and the soldiers say, listen, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle so that we can have victory. And they're pumped up, like, this is going to work. And probably Hophni and Phinehas are like, that's a great idea. We'll go with you. We'll be in the middle of it. I'm sure Eli was sitting there going like, ooh, this is, that's a bad idea. This is a bad idea. And they do it. But we know, we know he was thinking this. So his heart is, is concerned. His heart trembles for the ark. When they come back, hey, listen, this, your sons are dead, and they took the ark. And he's like, they took the ark, you know, and that's, that's what kills him. And so either he has a massive heart attack, falls off uh, and snaps his neck, or just out of shock, falls off his bench, snaps his neck. Either way, uh, that's where he dies, and the judgment of God is fulfilled in their life. Uh, now, verse 19. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, "Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son." But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, "The glory has departed from Israel." because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So then they come back, they find Phineas's wife and they tell her all this stuff's going on. Now, she's, she's well along in her pregnancy. But apparently, as it turns out, severe trauma can induce uh, an early uh, delivery. So it, uh, she goes into labor. And, um, and she does go through a severe trauma. Like in her mind, and the minds of Israel maybe, like God has been kidnapped, maybe. I mean, like if you feel like God's bound to the box, then when they take your box, they took your God, right? Now, that's a very pagan thought, by the way, which again, you talk about their theology a little bit. Uh, but the thought is God is gone, my husband is gone, and my husband's dad, who is basically the spiritual authority of all of Israel, he's gone. Like, it is over. And, the, and we've been defeated on the battlefield. 34,000 of us are dead, and the Philistines are on the move. And where do you think they're going to show up? They're going to show up in Shiloh. And they're gonna wipe us out or they're gonna enslave us or, or something horrible. Like it's, it's horrible. And so she has this kid and induces this labor. She gives birth. While she's giving birth, it's been such a traumatic delivery, she's gonna die. And then the attendant, trying to encourage her in, in some way, is like, well, hey, you know, you, you had a kid. It's a boy. Yay, boys. Um, and so she's got, got no joy at all. And so she names him Ichabod. And Ichabod means no glory or where's the glory. Uh, which is why, by the way, we don't name our children Ichabod to this day. Uh, that and it's a really weird name. But uh, other than that, so yeah, there's no uh, Ichabods uh, anymore. But anyway, the glory's departed, and uh, and all that she's going through. All right, now. Let's, let's talk about this. We can learn from this a little bit. And this is the thing for us. As we study this, we study the character of God. Let's pull back from that. Let's, let's remind ourselves. Okay, proper alignment. Proper alignment uh, reminds us of this, that life is most fulfilling when we're aligned with God. Life is most fulfilling when we're aligned with God. Can we draw principles from 1 Samuel 4? Absolutely, we can draw principles from 1 Samuel 4. Now, I am concerned. I am concerned that you would hear this, process this, and think, ah, well, that's the Old Testament God for you. I mean, just a God of judgment and doom and gloom. and lies. Okay, pause. Need to go back and read Revelation in the New Testament, find out how that turns out. And then also, I would take you back here and I would say this. Let's remember the contrast. He said, and we know this if you've been studying with this, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, he says, I will honor those who honor me. I'll honor those who honor me. So in the book of Samuel, who have we found that has honored the Lord? Well, the only ones we know explicitly, Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel. How are they doing? Uh, blessed, provided for, used by God, great relationships, things going well. Oh, what about those who have been disobedient to the Lord? Pain, devastation, murder, death. I mean, like, like if if you just pause for a second and say, logically, those who are walking with God are blessed. Those who are fighting him suffer. Like, if you want a principle from 1 Samuel 4, that's it. And if you're sitting there looking at your life going, man, things are hard in life. Okay, then I would say this. We all need to be asking the question of the elders of Israel. Is God against us in this? Or, or is there something we've done wrong? Like, like that's, that's how it is. So if we want to be in proper alignment, there's two things. One, we have to honor the Lord. Now, we know, because we've studied the New Testament, we know of Jesus, that honoring the Lord begins with submitting your life to Christ. That's what we know, that it starts at the cross, that we realize that we are nothing. Jesus is everything. He gave his life for us. If we put our faith in him, we can be delivered from the suffering that we deserve, and we will spend paradise uh, with God forever at the end of our lives. Um, But we need to honor the Lord first and foremost. And, And just a reminder, too, life is hard no matter what we do. No matter what you do, life is going to be hard. And it's not going to be easy for anybody. But the best kind of life is a life uh, walked with the Lord Jesus Christ in submission to the Lord. Uh, and then uh, a subs- uh, submissive to that is this idea that we can't ever get to the point where we try to manipulate God. Like we can't try to manipulate God. And you might say, I'm a Christian. I don't try to manipulate God. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> let's, let's take a warning from Scripture given in the New Testament. Uh, this comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So here's the thought, like God's going to do what he's going to do, and we need to be in alignment with him. But if you think, well, I really want this from God, so I'm going to pray a lot more, or I really want this from God, so now I'm going to add fasting, or I really want this from God, so now I'm going to be praying and fasting, and I'm going to stop doing some of the sin that I've been doing. Like, what are we doing here now? What kind of spell are you trying to cast? Like, you can't, that's not how God works. Listen, if you say, I'm gonna be obedient to the Lord, that's its own reward. <laughs> Walking in obedience to the Lord is its own reward. Like, you think he's gonna pour out extra for you? This is not how God works. So we too have to be careful of trying to manipulate him. Uh, that's not what we do. And, and let me just close with this, like I said already. Okay, so life, life's gonna be hard no matter what you do. You've been given this body. It works great for about 20 years. and and then it just heads south. In fact, uh, can we put a picture of the congregation on the screen right now? Um, I'm just kidding. Um, Like, it's gonna, it just heads south on you. It's just like, for most of us, we're just not where we wanna be. You're not at your peak anymore, a lot of you, and some of you are still headed there. So if you're still headed there, praise the Lord. If you're on the backside of it, welcome to the family. All right. So then, if we already know this, there is a general judgment we're all under. We're all going to die one day because of the sin of our history, and we've participated in it just as well. So we have this sinful judgment on mankind. But in the midst of it all, God is good, and he is there. And so we can still have a really good kind of life as we go this through this thing, despite all the suffering that we're going to have. This last week, uh, one of my favorite pastors and theologians uh, died. His name was Tim Keller. So Dr. Tim Keller um, passed away this last week. He was 72 years old, uh, and he had been struggling with pancreatic cancer for about three years. Like, I don't look at that and think, judgment of God, he must have done something. Like, that's not not how this works. We're all going to go through stuff. Some of us are going to suffer, and some of us are going to endure tragedy, maybe even at a young age. But it has nothing to do with the goodness of God. Let's remind ourselves of this that if we want to have the best kind of life that we can ever have, draw close to God on his terms and walk with him faithfully. Father God, thank you for the reminder this morning of how you work, what you do. And it is good for us to see the judgment that comes to people. Even for us, it gives us some perspective on our lives that we understand that those who are far from God, they bring a judgment on themselves. So Lord, because we know life's gonna be hard anyway, may we just stay close to you with a full faith in Jesus Christ and in full submission to you, to your glory, amen.